Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now, here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back with another episode of On the Record with Tiffany. A uh, lot's been going on this this uh, new year. We've had uh, January 6th insurrection. <laughs> We've had uh, record numbers of uh, COVID-19 cases. Uh, and our country is in a real conundrum. Um, so today's guest is a new voice on the scene. Uh, a young man that's been been uh, active in trying to achieve social justice for our people. So we are honored to have Alexander Dixon on today. Alexander, will you tell tell our our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, ma'am. Uh, first off, I want to thank you for even inviting me to your platform to come and speak. Uh, I'm honored to be here, and I just wanted to thank you for for hosting this. Oh, you're welcome. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, so, my name is Alexander Dixon. Uh, I run a food program on the east side here uh, in San Antonio, Texas. We call it the People's Pantry. Uh, the nonprofit is called Community Impact Builders. Um, so we started in March of last year when the first lockdown hit. Um, the east side is already known, uh, and the Promise Zone 78202 is already a food desert. Uh, we are mm-hmm. already food insecure way before the pandemic hit. But when COVID and the lockdown hit, it just exacerbated some conditions that were already there. Um, so me and a friend of mine, we band together. We first started off uh, buying pizzas at one of my uh, other friend's businesses that he owns. He owns uh, Tank's Pizzas on the Braunfels Avenue. It's the only Black-owned pizza place in all of San Antonio. And so, you know, there was a lot of families that were in need. So we would, you know, reach in our own pockets and buy some, you know, large pepperoni or large pizzas just for families to eat, you know, in the neighborhood because of the lockdown. And Eventually, we started getting some groceries and doing food drives and and really, you know, serving the people because, again, um, people that really aren't in the community, they don't see the hunger. You know what I mean? They don't see the struggle. Uh, Again, people were already working dead-end jobs or barely making ends meet, uh, were busy in the gig economy you know, doing Uber and Lyft with no benefits, being contractors, you know, working at Amazon, getting treated like a sharecropper. Um, so we were already in precarious conditions. So again, this COVID pandemic really just exacerbated conditions, especially in the African-American community that were already present. And so that's why we decided to band together because, um, you know, I'm a student of all the ancestors. And uh, one of my uh, role models, I would say, uh, is the ancestor Kwame Torre, which was Stokely Carmichael. Um, and he always, uh, he always emphasized organization and building institutions. So, uh, you know, during the George Floyd stuff and everything that was happening, uh, I see my peers and everybody mobilize, but they didn't organize. You know, you can mobilize and everything, but you have to organize and create those institutions to, you know, to continue to push for change and to continue to meet, you know, black peoples are just, you know, the community's material needs in general until we can get them addressed. Uh, you did. So you, during this pandemic, when you saw this pandemic unfolding, you went out and took a proactive stance on this. Yes, ma'am. To, to help our community. Yes, ma'am. That was the thing that drew me to you is is that and you know what's funny is that is it's funny that you would mention stokely carmichael because when i was your age like in my early 20s uh i actually was in a sociology class which i took with my husband didn't know he was going to be my husband at that time we weren't even dating (laughs) 
I just thought he was cute. <laughs> but <laughs> we took a class together, and uh, that was one of the speakers uh, during that class. And so it really had an impact on the two of us in regards to, uh, you know, our position and place and, and, and not an onus on us, but, but, you know, this is something that was taught to my generation, which was, Hey, we can only get so many of, of you to college Mm -hmm. and through college. Uh, uh, So when you get your behind up there, you do everything you can do to help the next person behind you. Absolutely. That's what we should do. That's what every other people group does. But I, what I, I, what I have seen is a lack of that amongst us, you know? So when I saw that you were out trying to, to make a difference, uh, I was like, we need to get him on our platform and let let people see this kid. Uh, I know you're not a kid, <laughs> but everybody should see that. And uh, our job as the ones who are a couple of steps ahead of you is uh, to make sure that the path is clear. And especially right now with what we see happening, uh, it's going to take all of us. Yes, ma'am. It's going to take all of us. And the people who are, you know, in my generation, people are, are like, no, they're being, they're, they're being too vocal. You can't be too vocal. There is no such thing as too vocal. You know, you all have done nothing except try to make sure that your children don't have to go through the same things that our children are going through. I look at look at you, and I have two nephews that are uh, adorable. They are eleven years old and um, and five years old. And one day they are going to be, and instead of adorable little boys, they're going to be handsome young men. And I do not want to be in fear of what happens if they're stopped by the police. We shouldn't have to have a separate conversation with our sons about what to do when the police stop you. Not if, when. Yeah. You know, um, so we're facing all of that on top of a pandemic, on top of 41% of Black businesses closing, just closing over the last 10 months. Yeah. You know, so that's huge. That's a huge economic blow to the black community. So when you saw all of this, you started buying pizzas and you started a nonprofit. Uh, Yes, ma'am. I mean, I wasn't my first. (laughs) First thing to do? (laughs) You're just feeling your way through? (laughs) Yeah, it was... um... We just, you know, we're, we're again, we we're spending this money out of our own pockets. We were buying groceries. We started with pizza, then we started buying actual groceries like rice and beans and meat and eggs and, mm-hmm. and toiletries before, um, you know, all the panic buying and everything happened, especially for the elderly. Um, they weren't able to leave. And, and of course, like during the pandemic, you didn't want like single moms on um, public transportation, you know, with their kids and having to go get groceries at the grocery store. Because at that time, we didn't know the severity of, of COVID yet. We just mm-hmm. were like, just don't leave the house. Like, you know, everything was mm-hmm. to leave the house. Lockdown. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so it started off as, you know, a mutual aid program, you, you would say. Like, you know, this, was a, this is still a community-based organization and group. And so people in the neighborhood were just like, nah, man, you, you can't keep using all your money and all this stuff. Like, you mm-hmm. need to, you know get it and you know with the nonprofit status and try to you know fundraise and and you know uh get grants and stuff to just scale it up and keep it going and you know and keep feeding everybody and so you know i took the people's advice you know as this was coming from the actual people in the neighborhood that were like hey i think you need to do this i didn't come 
on some, well, I'm going to do this and people are going to buy into it. Like, no, people, the people came and said, hey, why don't you do this? Because we need this. And since you have the will to act, like, how about, you know, we're going to support you. Why don't you do it? So I just listened to everybody. This wasn't something I just woke up and was like, I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) So how has it been? Who has who has has come out and supported you? Which companies? Uh, So so far, Meals on Wheels have helped us. Uh, There's another uh, foundation the Baptist Foundation that helps us out uh, with some groceries. Uh, but as far as that, uh, you know, we're just really getting this off the ground and, and looking for partnerships and everything. Uh, because, uh, you know, in the nonprofit industrial complex, there's a lot of red tape. Uh, my mission is clear. I'm serving the people. I don't want all that red tape that comes with, you know, with the money. If I If there's too many strings attached with your money, you can keep it. I need to have the sovereignty an autonomy as a black led organization. I believe in self-determination. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't mean we can't partner and help people out and, and help everybody. But, you know, I look at these partnerships uh, with, with other groups as in, are, there, are they going to support us helping ourselves as far as, you know, gaining our, you know, self-determination that we can, you know, have the power and the resources to shape our own destinies and improve our own quality of life. And so some organizations, you know, I wouldn't deal with just because I know there'd be too red tape and too many strings with the money. I'd rather keep, you know, our autonomy and keep the mission really going for the, for the poor and working class folks in the neighborhood. Say the name of your, your um, nonprofit again. Uh, Community Impact Builders. Community Impact Builders. So what made you come up with that name, Community Impact Builders? Because it's so, it's wide open. You can do so much with that. Yes, yes. So what what inspired that name? So uh, to your point, I did want it kind of nebulous just because, you know, I don't want to pigeonhole us into one thing and like, you know. Into just a food pantry. Right. Yeah. That's just one of our programs. You know, right. the People's Pantry is just one program under, you know, Community Impact Builders. But there's some other programs that, you know, eventually I want to build. Um, but this one is more serious and more pressing right now at this moment because there's food insecurity. And, you know, a lot of jobs aren't coming back. We might be staring down another lockdown. Um, the economy is still in flux right now. Um the supply chain can, is still getting affected. There's still shortages and there's food prices and inflation that's help, happening this year. So I'm trying to really focus on, you know, at the end of the day, people have to eat. If we can't mm-hmm. even feed ourselves, then what actually can we do? If we can't feed ourselves in every other problem, we can't even handle because we can't even handle our daily needs. So we have to get back to the basics. A lot of people... Um, they get too theoretical and, you know, and some other stuff. And it's like, Hey, like you have to take care of the actual foundational needs. And we all have basic yeah. needs, food, water, clothing, shelter. Um, yeah, you can't deal with the esoteric when you, <laughs> when there is no food on your plate. <laughs> yes. yes. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. all the other theories. And everything outside of that, I mean, like I told, you know, some of my some of my folks that were, you know, uh, protesting during the George Floyd uh, things. And and so my thing is like, yeah, you know, marching protests, that's other people's stuff, what they do. I, I don't really believe in marching and protesting, honestly. Uh, I mean, I believe in direct action. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if somebody was, you know, uh, evicting people, then, you know, we'll, you know, wall ourselves up and stick together and try to keep them from, you know, evicting people. But as far as just marching and protesting, that's not really my thing. I mean, at the end of the day, the cops out there, they're going to brutalize you. They got the power to brutalize you. They're going to call you a Black Lives Matter Antifa terrorist. Um, Now they can arrest you, brutalize you and put a jacket on you. And now they can really, you know, bother you. You're now you're in the system. Now they can watch you exactly what you're doing as far as marching and protesting 
and but all see, actors. I, I kind of share your sentiments on marching and protest. I don't have any. I don't have a problem with anybody marching and protest. That's that just is not my American man. right. That's just not my but I, I'm about policy change. Yeah. If if you want to change something in this country, you don't ever have to march and protest. You simply have to be able to write legislation and change policy. Yeah. You have to go out and change policy and yeah. protest in that way. Now, uh, and that really is where where that particular movement is is at. If you if we're saying that that uh, we want. Uh, food deserts to be changed. We want social equity. We want health care equity. Yes. Uh, within the healthcare industry, uh, African-Americans um, receive poor health care. And that is a, that is a fact uh, within, within chronic kidney disease. There, there are, are many factors that weigh into, to uh, us being, being marginalized in the transplantation process. Um, luckily, there are some really great people that are, are pushing forward on, on the matter of, of, uh, of equity in, in healthcare across the board. Um, but it is through policy change. It's not, there, there's no amount of rhetoric and, and marching will change policy. And I think that's where that disconnect has come from between uh, the civil rights era of yesterday and today. Because we had all of this this, uh, momentum for change at that time. And people understood that that the marching would have to end in policy change, would have to, would have to, um, come to a head in terms of policy, and, and we saw that with with Johnson signing so many things into uh, into being that that helped uh, every ethnic minority and women in this country. You know, so we know that that's there that that's the way you you change so i you know i i share your sentiments i'm like boots on the ground is what what we need you can talk and chant as much as you want to but when people are hungry they need a food pantry <laughs> they don't they don't need you to talk about a food pantry <laughs> they need a food pantry <laughs> and, and that was one of my my things i was telling some of my activist friends is like Again, marching and protesting is necessary. It's cool. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, it can, you know, have change. You have to, but you have to agitate with your already list of demands, of actionable demands. Exactly. Their attention, they're going to say, okay, well, you're doing all this. Oh my God, what do you want from us? And then you hit them with this, this, this. this, this. I, and you have a, you, you have something that is executable and that is going to be of a, a direct help. You can't just, Go marching around, pissed off, and not not have anything at the end that you want to actually accomplish. <laughs> yeah, going back to Kwame Torre, like everybody mobilized. They mobilized on emotions. Everybody saw the video of George Floyd and everything, and everybody was mad. But when they went down there and they're yelling at the police, they in the media asking you, or policymakers asking you, so what do you want? Most of the people are just like, oh, we just want to end racism and this. It's like, okay, well, what else do you want? How do we do this? And, you know, they just, they didn't have the actual actionable items, like actual policy, you know, actual tangible, you know, hard-ass action items that we could get across. And my thing was, like, again, I was telling my activist friends, we're like, you're going to go there, you're going to yell, you're going to scream, it's going to feel good, but then you, then these people are going to go home, open their fridge from marching and protesting because they're hungry, and they ain't got no food. So you just mm-hmm. went there, spent that whole day marching and protesting and yelling. And most of the people that came down to your march and protesting, they ain't really got enough food in their house. Mm-hmm. How, well, if you had an ideal, in an ideal world for you and your nonprofit, uh, what 
what would be your ideal partner? Would you want to partner with an AGB or with someplace like that that could give you tons of food? Uh, I mean, that would be cool if, if, you know, we come to an understanding that it's a partnership and it's not, uh, you know, it's not just, oh, we, we're just helping these little black people out and, you know, as soon as they act up, we're just going to rip the funding and, and food from them. You know what I mean? Just because sometimes our politics might not align. Um, it was It's going to have to be a partnership built on, you know, mutual understanding and like, you know, honor and integrity that you want to feed the people. So let's feed the people. Mm-hmm. How we can do it without, you know, the red tape or you know, not trying to control what we're trying to do. You know what I mean? Um, so again, any type of partnership, I'm, I'm willing to work with anybody that's willing to work with us and that they have an understanding and, you know, respect our mission and, you know, how we do things. So tell us what your mission is. So right now it's really to feed the people, feed the streets, like as many folks that we can get some actually good, groceries to them and you know to keep this program going and eventually you know i know the county has done some stuff as far as like urban agricultural but it's not owned by the people you know what i mean i would like to get into actual like a community supported agricultural program we don't have that here and basically we'd be able to you know do our own growing um and you know people can buy shares into the program like, say, for instance, uh, you, you spend $50 on a share, like, we give you $50 worth of produce. But if you spend, like, $100 a share, we give you that produce, $50 worth, but then we also use that other $50 to give as a share to, like, you know, a single mom on, you know, EBT or, like, elderly people so that we kind of mm-hmm. pass that forward and kind of, you know, really cooperatively, you know, look after each other. But definitely, like, a community support agricultural program and like to really keep the produce and stuff going and even getting some chickens, goats, you know, stuff like that. Just really just, you know, controlling the food source as far as like food justice, you know what I mean? Just, you know, that we're able to feed ourselves in any kind of condition. I've seen uh, uh, urban gardens uh, and, and uh, I just think that's a, a great program. There's a, there's a program through Texas A&M that is, uh, is a community. Um, it teaches people how to, to grow their own, their own food within their community in, in very small plots of land. Yeah. So that you can, I mean, even if you only have, you know, an eight by eight piece of, uh, of land or, you know, section in your yard, you can grow uh, a lot of food in, in that little bitty space. <laughs> if you plan it out, you know, like you, you really can teach people a lot about food. Like we can answer, we can answer some of the problems that we have with food deserts within our community. If we're willing to, uh, to uh, get out there and garden and do some of the things that, that, which is relaxing and fabulous, you know, you can definitely improve the quality of your life and the quality of the lives around you with, with ideas like this uh, within the community. Have you worked with uh, any of the other East side organizations like SAGE uh, I haven't worked with Sage. I'm I'm not too. I mean, I know what Sage is. I know who they are, but I have never spoke with anybody from Sage like that. Um, I created the the COVID nineteen uh, resource hub. I did that for Ella Austin as a contractor. So I did that during the summer when the pandemic hit. I was. And you there. just came up with with all of this stuff by yourself. You and your friends. For the most part, yes, ma'am. I just, you know, I, I marvel at that uh, because uh, 
that level of ingenuity is what we need uh, within the community because there is such a such a deficit right now that and there will be for some time to come uh, this COVID-19 is pushing people into uh, acute kidney injury. And what that is, is 46% of the people who are admitted into the hospital with COVID-19 will leave the hospital with some stage of kidney disease. Uh, If that's the case, and that is the case, then what does that look like for the general population? Because the general population that gets COVID-19, because with kidney disease, you do not show a lot of symptoms and you don't feel bad. So you could be nearly in renal failure and function just as you do right now. And I say that because Currently, in the state of Texas, kidney disease is, is a just the the uh, dialysis portion of kidney disease in the state of Texas is nearly a five billion dollar a year problem. Wow. Now, if you extrapolate those numbers out and look at them on the scale of of what the United States numbers are. It's like 84 billion for chronic kidney disease, the, you know, stages one through three B. And then uh, the, another 30 billion for, for uh, no, another 40 billion for uh, end stage renal disease. Okay. So that's the case It's three to one on uh, CKD and ESRD. So if that's if those numbers are still the same in Texas, then five billion dollars for for C for ESRD in state renal disease. Flip it over, and it's three to one for kidney disease. So that's another fifteen billion dollars for for any stage of CKD. So we're talking about a a $20 billion a year problem in this state. And nobody knows much about kidney disease. Even with that, but you see them everywhere. You see those dialysis units everywhere. Everybody is dealing with diabetes and hypertension, the two leading causes of kidney disease. And yet... Not people don't know enough about kidney disease. Well, if those numbers are correct, if 46% of the people who are admitted into the hospital are leaving with some stage of kidney disease, and over 70% of that 46% had no signs of kidney disease prior to COVID 19. If that's right, and that's the same in in the population that is not hospitalized, we got a big problem headed our way. Very big problem. You know, we already have a big problem with kidney disease now, but as dollars and a disease rise, eventually resources run out. Yeah. Or become severely limited. As we see right now, right now, we see that with our hospital beds. Yeah. So what is this going to mean 24 months from now, 36 months from now, as people start coming out from COVID-19 and realizing that there are some long-term ramifications to it? You know, so people like you, we need about... 20,000 more <laughs> across the country. <laughs> but I was like, when I, when I, I met you via Zoom, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eventually we'll get to see one another in real life. Uh, I thought, we need to get him on 
and talk talk to him to see what what we can do to help the community impact builders and the people that they are are reaching on the east side because the east side is so historic and has done so much not just for san antonio but for the whole nation because the reason why we have the largest mlk march in the united states is because we had one of the largest educated uh african-american populations Mm -hmm. in the united states prior during during segregation and after the the uh, after the Civil War and the release of slaves, this area grew up to be one of prominence in terms of business and uh, the educating of, of black folks. And and we actually took a stance here in San Antonio. Our forefathers did uh, that said we want to be the best educated. We don't want to just be, just have vocations, Mm -hmm. but we want to be amongst the best. We want our kids to go as far as they can go intellectually. And they did that. You know, so that, you know, we have a strong legacy in history here to be proud of. You know, often I, somebody said to me like, few months ago before the pandemic uh you know you always walk into a room and act like you own the room and i said that's because i'm black you're black you better walk into a room and act like you own it because you because there may not be a single other person in that room that (laughs) will treat you with respect so if you want if you want to you know you got to just step up yeah you got to demand your respect that's right. You've got to step up to the plate and let people know you're not you, that uh, you're not inferior. You're not a minority. You're major. You're not minor. You're major. You know. So <laughs> they were like, oh. <laughs> oh. But when I saw you, I thought, and I was listening to what you were saying to those politicians. I I was just tickled to death because I thought, <laughs> one, you reminded me of my husband. <laughs> Because my husband was like that when he was when he was your age. That was when when we met uh, Stokely Carmichael. Um, my husband was basically like that as well. He was asking like questions that that uh, the other panelists were were completely stumped. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, you guys are. All, everybody wants to get together and make all these big claims and that's true you know we run into politicians often who give a lot of lip service uh to to helping communities but yet we're watching those very same communities deteriorate year after year yeah and uh you know administration after administration across the board yeah so you know what? What do you say to to this incoming administration? You know, every, everybody's very hopeful that that this is going to be different. I'm hopeful, uh, but there has to be a plan. Yeah. So, what do you what do you want to see happen to address your food deserts on the east side? in our community so that's a good question because um on the east side in the neighborhood like uh that we do our food distributions and everything it's still designated as the promise zone as federal promise zone under hud we have that designation Mm -hmm. i think 2024 or 2022 and so Mm -hmm. now we have a favorable uh federal administration and we also have you know uh you know a black woman at hud so hopefully she's favorable to us as far as understanding, you know, our plight and, you know, the resources that we would need. But uh, 
I'm trying to see if we can leverage some federal dollars and get some more help to have these resources come in to really, you know, help with the food insecurity as far as, you know, with the community support agricultural thing, uh, get some space as far as uh, the pantry to be able to have like some refrigeration space. We don't even have a lot of refrigeration space community wise um, for that. And maybe, you know, invest in some cooperatives. How many families do you serve right now? So right now we're able to, for the capacity that we have as far as the food, Mm -hmm. uh, we're serving about 60 families. And the average family size is about like five. It's a lot of people. Wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I have pictures and everything. I mean, it's to the point of last week when we did a distro, um, there was a lady. Uh, there was she, she was living in a house with 15 people and 11 of them were, ki- were, ch- were children. Wow. So you're serving about 360 people. Yeah, we're feeding a lot of individuals in the household. So you went from feeding nobody yeah. to feeding 360 people. Well, no wonder you had to stop just, just how many people can feed 360 people yeah. <laughs> just I out mean, of their own pocket. Yeah. I mean, we try, I mean, and the need is growing. Our The word is getting out uh, and people are relying on, you know, our pantry because we're right on Hayes. Like we post up right on the block, you know, uh, a lot of. What's your address? Uh, 902 North New Braunfels. That's, we do it on the side of my friend's business, on the side of Tank's Pizzas. Right where the Hayes Food Mart is, we do it on the opposite side. So we post up on Hayes, but I'm trying to scale it up to where we can have different food distribution, like area and times, and then also do especially some uh, some deliveries because there's a lot of marginalized, very, very marginalized people that don't have... Uh, you know, transportation. I remember the city mm-hmm. of San Antonio did a study not too long ago, and one of the stats was 17% of black folks in, in San Antonio don't even have a car, don't have no kind of transportation. Um, and that's a hard, that that is a hard thing for us to comprehend when we have transportation, but that's the facts. People do not have cars. There, there are so many reasons why, like with Texas Kidney Foundation, we work with we do um, early detection of chronic kidney disease. So we we do free screenings for chronic kidney disease. We also have created a, a um, healthcare uh, general physical for uh, for people, general blood work, and and uh, so they can tell what their kidney function is. So we're we're doing blood work for kidney function as well as for for um uh diabetes, hypertension, to identify our triglycerides and where we're at. So that you know what your what your baseline is because right now uh healthcare is so expensive and yeah. we've gotten the cost down to fifty dollars. So it's fifty dollar test to see nurse. Um when in trying to do things like this, uh, you know, because I firmly believe that there's no Calvary coming. We have to be our own Calvary. Yeah. Uh, and we can be. We can be. We have we have have people who have the capacity to do that yeah. uh, and who are willing to just think outside of the box and go for it like you did like I'm doing, like so many others, Ella Austin, you know, there are those of us that are just like, no, we're not going to, we're not going down without a fight. (laughs) This country has too much money, too many resources for us not to, to uh, go and marshal those resources to make sure that the people of our community are taken care of. So tell me a little bit more, Alexander, about uh, your other programs. Right, You've got so, the People's Pantry, and you're addressing food insecurity. Do you have some other programs that you're working on? So right now, they're all in you know the early stages of development, just because I'm so focused on the pantry. People's issue. Pantry, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Just because there's so much need, and you know our name is getting out there, and people are really relying on our pantry. So I'm just trying to scale it up because. You know, our food would go fast. Like at first, when we first started, like it would, you know, it would take like two hours to get rid of all the groceries. Now it takes like 30 minutes. 
And then I have to spend the next like hour and 30 minutes from our allotted time turning people away saying, Hey, we don't, we don't have, and, and it, and it sucks and it, and it feels terrible. And, and that's why I'm just, you know, trying my hardest to, you know, really galvanize some more resources and, and scale up the program because there's a lot of need and it's not going any, anywhere anytime soon. Um, and I also wanted to expand it on the West side because, you know, I got some families that I know in the Arizona Apache courts is a house, this the oldest housing project in San Antonio. And, you know, they don't have any kind of programs either as far as like food delivery services, um, and they're having a hard time. And I mean, they're facing, you know, the tearing down of their public housing and all the gentrification, everything that's coming with that. So it's only making them even more food insecure. So I'm trying to expand that program over there and, and try to get some families, some groceries over there. Um, and so I've just been so busy with the layers of the food program, because even then, like, you know, talking to people in the public housing in the West side of you know, it's mostly a Hispanic, you know, housing development, but there's also black people that live there. Um, a lot of them were given were given those food boxes, the USD food boxes, but it was mostly, you know, uh, fruit heavy. And a lot of those people suffer from diabetes. So they, mm-hmm. were, they weren't even trying to touch that fruit. You know, they needed like some meat or, you know, some diabetic mm-hmm. food. And, and, you know, people are glad to have a meal, but what's the point mm-hmm. of having some food if it's just going to make you sick? Right. And, Sometimes the food bank and other places, um, they mean well. But when you're poor, you have a lot of health issues and you need a specific diet. And it's unfair that in the richest country in the world with all these ailments and all this money going around that we can't give people the proper, you know, nutrition that they need. And so I'm trying to, you know, layer the program as far as, hey, not only are we getting food and people are having they have given them the right foods. I love that. You know, because uh, that's that's one of our our big um, behavioral health, and uh, what's what's going into your mouth is is one of the big things that we emphasize at Texas Kidney Foundation, mm-hmm. and that is because uh, food you can see food kind of like it's medicine. Yeah, it is because it. It can affect your body the same way that a negative medicine would affect your body. It can it can heal it or it can tear it down, <laughs> you know. Um, so I like that you all are putting emphasis on what kind of food and the quality of food that y'all are giving to the public. I believe that that uh, that our people deserve the best. I don't care if they have the least. They deserve the best. Yeah, we deserve quality. That's right. Like Everyone does. We deserve quality like anybody else. That's right. And it, it should not be that we, you know, right now in our country, we, we have really vilified the poor. Yeah. If you're poor, we act like there is something that you have fundamentally done wrong yeah. that has caused you to be poor. And therefore, you know, whatever you get is what you get. Yeah. You know, we just don't 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 have the respect for a hard day's work Yeah, that may not. You know, a, a lot of our folks on the east side are working hard every day. Oh, absolutely. They're just not making lots of money. Yeah. But they're doing an honest day's work. Uh, they love their children and their families, just like everyone else. And should be respected for doing an honest day's work because a lot of us, as we found out during this pandemic, why are we all still living and around? Because we, because of the cashiers and the checkout men and women and the janitors, the people who are cleaning everything. Yeah. They're the reason why we're still all around and able, able to uh, live and breathe and do. So it's it's not the lawyers and the doctors and the the uh, engineers, but it's actually those folks that are on the the front lines of keeping our lives good. Yeah. And keeping food flowing and keeping all of the the things that we need moving. 
yes, doctors are very important and, and so are nurses and, and the healthcare professionals. But if there's no food and if everything is filthy, the doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals can't do anything for you. No, they're going to be overwhelmed. <laughs> you know, you know, so, so, you know, I'm, I, when I look at what you're doing over at uh, Community Impact Builders and the People's Pantry, you know, I want, I want to see you guys flourish and everybody, everybody help you in whatever way that they can. What do you want to see happen in the next hundred days, in the first hundred days of the Biden-Harris administration? Because that, that, to me, looking at them, they provide a lot of hope, especially in the chaos that we're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, I, I see people, yes, they're divided, but I, I see the opportunity for, for them to come together on this. So what would you like to see in the next hundred days in terms of our East side and how it's impacted? So the first hundred days in their administration, I definitely would like for them. I mean, I know they're working on a COVID package right now, um, but I would definitely like them to allot some federal dollars uh, into black communities, not just saying, you know, I, I want, how can I put this? I want race specific policies for black people. We've had a specific race problem done to us, and it's going to only be rectified by race-specific policies that's going to target our needs. Um, so I would like to see um, them, you know, putting dollars into, you know, federal programs for Black people, like a, like a, a jobs program, like, you know, to help with employment. I know there's like young Black youth unemployment is like 70-some percent, something crazy like that. So like a guaranteed federal jobs program, um, I would like to see, you know, student loan forgiveness, you know, um, definitely, you know, bring back the Voting Rights Act, like fix what was done to that. Um, Definitely uh, put some more money into, I know there's an amendment that was made, I forgot the name of it, but it's basically, it stops public housing. We need to put more money in actually expanding public housing and not just mixed income development and stuff like that. We need to actually really have like more robust public housing that people can afford. And it's going to take the federal government to really step up and and put that money into it. Um, So why do you think that the policy should be race specific? Because sometimes when I'm looking at this, I see poor. Like the way we treat the poor period, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, if you're poor, you've got a problem. There are 140 million poor people in the United States. So when when we're looking at policy, because policy tends to be just across the board. It's not, there aren't a lot of policies that are race specific. So if we're, especially in regards to food insecurity, mm-hmm. although I, I I would think that it would be that you could do something like that, but it would be more regional. I, I'm just thinking. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'll explain myself, my reasoning with this. Uh, yeah, what, what's we, your... We've always had so-called universal programs but mm-hmm. on paper it's universal but when it's implemented it's not implemented where it's actually benefiting black people for the most part and why i say race specific is because we've had specific issues happen to us you know reconstruction and, and everything all the fallout with that was race specific you know uh jim crow and everything was race specific you know the fha loans all that stuff was race specific so mm-hmm. i can't do something specifically, like say if I do something specifically, you know, to your body part, say I break your arm specifically, mm-hmm. but but I'm trying to like bandage your foot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
I specifically broke your arm. Mm-hmm. If I'm not specifically going to, you know, take care of your arm, it's always going to hurt. You, you, you know, now your bone is broken. You, you, your blood might get infected. You might have to get it amputated. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. get worse if I don't specifically address that issue. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, nothing was ever universal when it happened to us. You know what I mean? There was a specific, we come up for black folks. Are we discriminating black folks? Are we going to do this to black folks? Everything was always specific to us. And even then, you know, with, uh, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt and all those New Deal stuff, even though it was universal on paper, they were still racist and specifically kept black people out. So you're going to have to just specifically do this. Like they know everybody has taken history. Uh, we've been here 400 something years and we've contributed to this country for 400 some years. And, you know, we des- we deserve our justice and we deserve fairness. You've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany and my special guest, Alexander Dixon. Alexander, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you and what they can do, what you need. Okay, um, you can reach out to me uh, at Community Impact Builders on Facebook. Um you can also reach out to my email. It's Alexandre, period, S as in Sprint, period, Dixon, D-I-X-O-N at gmail.com. And, you know, we could just use your time, your help, uh, any kind of resources you have as far as if you know somebody that knows somebody somewhere, <laughs> send, them, send them to us. And we'd love to sit down with them and, and talk and, and see what we can do and and help build this program and grow this program and sustain it for the people. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930am The Answer.